Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all and good to uh, hopefully see you all on the screen. And it's been a great day so far. Very cool day. It's really uh, a little bit shocking to our systems to have a 9 a.m. service outside in 45 degree weather. It's much more comfortable in here, but it's been a great day and a great weekend. I can say just how thankful I am for this church and the ways in which People are striving to serve, to reach out, to bless, to welcome, and to worship. And so um, we have had a quite a weekend together. I want to um, just tell you that we are in this text today on Ephesians chapter 2. We've been uh, in a series, this is our third week, on the hope of the world. The church is the vehicle by which the gospel message is going to all of the world. It's where we see Christ embodied in his presence through the life and the witness and the work of the church. And Paul is writing about the church in the book of Ephesians. If you've done much study in it, you know it's, it's a very deep and profound book. And today's passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, is particularly dense and profound and deep. And it's explaining, I'll give you a framework to understand in essence, what this passage is covering. It's telling us about our past. It's telling you about our present reality and our future to come. So Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, past, present, and future. And so I thought it would be great for us to pray. And our Book of Common Prayer has a list of great prayers to pray in certain um, settings and situations. And on 649, this is the prayer about the local congregation, the church. O God, the Holy Spirit, sanctifier of the faithful, sanctify this congregation here, this congregation gathered by your abiding presence. Bless those who minister in holy things. Enlighten the minds of your people more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Bring erring souls to the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and those who are walking in the way of life, keep steadfast to the end. Give patience to the sick and the afflicted and renew them in body and soul. Guard those who are strong and prosperous from forgetting you. Increase in us your many gifts of grace and make us all fruitful in good works. For this we ask, O blessed Spirit, whom the Father and and whom with the Father and the Son we worshiped and glorify, one God, world without end. Amen. So I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians 2, turn in your Bibles and find this passage, and we'll um, spend our morning together understanding this. So Paul starts off with our past the things that were, what has been. And he says in verse 19, consequently, in other words, in light of the gospel, in light of this uh, overwhelming mercy of God to rescue us, 
not by anything we've done, he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not by something we've done. We don't get to brag and say, look what I did to make myself right before God. But because of his mercy and grace in our lives, we experience his salvation and we become his workmanship in the world. It's a profound mystery of how the gospel, which is something we apprehend with our hearts and our minds, we believe and how it works in us to make us to be the kind of people that God has planned for us. And so our past, Paul reminds us in verse 19, is that consequently, or as a result of the gospel, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. We might use more terms like this. Um, We might say immigrants or people, refugees, and outsiders. We're no longer immigrants and refugees or outsiders to God because of the gospel, because he has brought us near. And maybe you can relate to this. I mean, I think we all experience some level of this, whether we travel, whether we move. I met a family this morning at nine who just moved here a week ago from another state. Um, You know, there's, there's just this sense that we all experience a little bit of this this reality being a a refugee or an immigrant to a place or a stranger, an outsider to a place. And we understand that in the physical sense. And there's this um, professor, Danny Carroll, who teaches at Wheaton College and was at Denver Seminary, who wrote this regarding um, immigrants. And he says this, what all Christians should appreciate is that the more they can grasp about migration, the movement of people, and the experiences of immigrants, the more they will understand their faith. I think that's pretty profound. That is, the truths of such convictions as the reality of having another heavenly citizenship and the rejection that can come from being different, as well as the vulnerability that surfaces with needing to be dependent on God alone. Sadly, it is not uncommon for Christians to not feel like strangers in a strange land. Their place of residence has lost its strangeness, and now they join with others wanting to keep strangers out. I think this quote is very um, helpful for us to understand what Paul is getting at, that you were, consequently, you used to be alienated, refugees, strangers to God and to his promises. But because of God's grace and mercy, you are no longer such. Think about this. The Probably, you know, in our advanced world, one of the most difficult things to become is to become homeless, to be without a home, to be without a place that is <clears throat> a safety and a place of security. And Paul is saying the worst, um, it, being homeless in the world is bad enough, physically estranged, but he's talking here about a spiritual estrangement, not having a home with God, not having a right relationship to God. And the most loneliest place to be is without God, and to be without God is to be without hope. And Paul says to the church, to us who are listening, to us who are gathered here in this room, that's your past. If you have received the gospel, 
if these really are words of life and you've been cut to the heart and you realize the distance between you and God and your need for grace and you've been made new by his gospel message of good news, then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer an outsider or a refugee, but you're home. And that's why the second session of this, second piece of this passage is our present reality. So if our past was foreigners and strangers, then, and we are in the church, the family of God, what does that mean? And he continues, he says, but fellow citizens, you were foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I know there's a family in our church here who received their citizenship a year ago. What an amazing thing that they have left and walked away from that which was familiar and come here and been made a part of this nation. And, and, and the Lord is speaking through Paul to say, you were in your past outside, but now you are home with God, fellow citizens, and not just you and God, but you're also members of his household. And then Paul describes for us what that means. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, this whole building, this whole work, this whole family is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You used to be alienated. Tim Keller helps us understand this passage in one of his messages by saying that, that Paul used three, he uses three powerful images in this text to help us understand what God is doing to us over time through the work of the gospel. And the three images are first, citizenship, second, a family, and third, a stone in a temple. So let's talk about the first one. A, a citizenship. You know, I've traveled abroad enough. Occasionally I'll go overseas and I'll bump into someone from America and we'll play the dancing game. Where are you from? Pennsylvania, New York, Oklahoma, whatnot. And you know that because that person is a fellow citizen, there is a level of commonality. There's a level of relationship that we have by being Americans, even when we encounter each other across the sea. And that's the first image. That's sort of like the doorway in, what the gospel does. It gives us a commonality together. But we know, secondly, the image that Paul uses is a family. You know, the thing is, it's true about my family. You can criticize me all day long, but you can't talk about my kids, right? They're my kids. I get to talk about them. You don't because of this adage, blood is thicker than water. Like, I, I just, it's off limits to criticize someone in my family for you. But um, I can tell you all the things wrong with my family. That blood, that relationship is a little bit thicker than our other relationships. So what, what Paul is setting up to understand is the work of the gospel starts to build in us a proximity and an intensity to one another. And this is what Keller says. He says, you see, in a nation... A king lives and rules, but you don't get to know the king. In a family, there's a father and mother, and you do get to know the father and mother. They're a lot more involved in their life. But in the last one, in a holy temple, you're like a stone built into the wall. 
proximate, permanent, and that is the place where God dwells and you get to enjoy his fellowship and relationship. So you see the depth of the Christian experiences goes along this way, citizenship, familyhood, temple. But also our intensity towards God as it grows in those things, our intensity also increases towards one another. And so you think about this, these images, this is what the gospel does with the church. It presses us closer together over time. And the gospel, and and I know that as 21st century superstar Americans, we don't like to think about this, is it presses us towards each other in such a way that our relationships should become more deeper, more proximate, and even harder to leave because we're a part of the citizenship of God, the family of God, and his temple. Here's some evidence, and here's, here's some ways that I think you could ask yourself, am I experiencing that? I mean, sitting here, you're thinking, you know, I'm a part of the church, but you're talking about a level of proximity and intensity that I might not be experiencing. How do I do that? Or how do I know that that's true? You will see a sense of commitment towards one another by being a part of the church and accountability. Um, Dan Alger and Drew and I were on a phone call recently, and I've worked with Drew for 10 years. I trust Drew. Um, I love him, the same thing, and, and that those relationships are also maturing in other staff relationships, but Drew called me out on a phone call about my day off. Now, I respect that and give him the right to do that because I trust him, and he's a brother, and he asked me, are you really spending your day off? And I had to go, I really am, Drew, trust me. But, you know, if you didn't know me that well, you actually couldn't ask me that kind of question. So that relationship, that accountability, that sense of commitment to one another has come over time. Has someone ever asked you, hey, how's your faith doing? How's your day off? How's your time with Jesus? And if if they are asking those kinds of questions, It's because we are together as brothers and sisters. Second way that I see or evidences of the depth of our relationship is we practice hospitality. Do you share your resources, your home, your time? And here's the thing. This is what 21st century Americans do. We run around saying this. We say it in our posts. We say it in meetings. We say it to one another privately. We say, I really wish I had intimacy in relationships. And yet then with the same breath out of the same lips that called for this level of intimacy, we we will say, and I want it on my time when it's convenient for me, when it fits my world and my schedule and my life. And the truth is, You cannot have both. In order to grow in proximity and intensity as the believers, as the body of Christ, you have to practice the art of hospitality. You have to open your lives to others. And you might ask, well, why is that? And that is because the gospel primarily, not solely, but primarily is a message of hospitality. God who was estranged to us, 
because of us, comes near, sacrifices, and serves to draw us into his family. It is a message, ultimately, of hospitality. God makes strangers like you and me family. And you know, think about it. If you've ever been estranged, if you've ever felt the outsider of a group, and you get on the inside, and then you see another outsider, and you yourselves do not practice hospitality to them, what a tragic uh, thing that we live when we do that. What a tragic reality when we don't embody the very gospel that brought us near. Now, some of you will be objecting in your minds. Some folks have already heard this sermon in this room, but if you're listening on Zoom or in this room, you, will, you should be objecting in your hearts and minds. You should be thinking through this list this way. You know, I hear what you're talking about, this relationship, this intimacy, this connection of the church, this commitment to one another, this practicing of hospitality, but I don't feel that. I don't experience that. In fact, often the church can be a place where I feel at the least, or I've been disappointed. I sat with a lady yesterday at the farmer's market, and she poured out her heart about how disappointed and hurt she is by the church. And at one level, I get it. I do. I understand that. I am a part of the church. I've been hurt by the church. I know what that feels like. And yet, Paul helps us understand the two resources that we have to overcome this reality, this lack of intimacy, this lack of hospitality in the church. And that is this. The first asset that God gives us is what Paul calls in this chapter, in this section, the apostles and the prophets. It's another way of saying God has given us his scriptures. The prophets primarily wrote the Old Testament. If you think of the list of names, primarily they were prophetic leaders. The apostles primarily wrote the New Testament. They were firsthand witnesses to the Lord Jesus. The most valuable thing that you possess is the holy, sacred, infallible word of God, which shapes you and informs you and speaks to those places in your life about who you are. Recently with my children, I didn't make all of them, but we watched the Harry Potter movie. So we bought all the soul set and downloaded it. It was our evening um, uh, movie nights and we went through the whole series, and spoiler alert, it's been out for a while, so I can spoil it for you. But in essence, it's a movie about a little boy who grows up, and the story is all about who is his identity and his purpose. And really, through self-sacrifice and love, he saves the day, and the movie ends well. But you think about this. What is your identity and your purpose And what thing, what voice, what truth is shaping you the most? And that's the power and the purposes of the scriptures to bring witness to who God is, what his plan and his purposes are for you. But if you don't listen to it, it works this way. It's so simple that even one of my young children can understand this. If you are not consuming the word, listening to the word, feasting on the word of God, then something else, friends, is shaping your identity and your purpose. 
Something else is going to tell you who you are, how you should live, what you should be doing. So the way that God gives us, the, the, the thing that God gives us to assist us in our life in the church is his scriptures to speak to our hearts, to correct us when we are off, to encourage us and to help us to see his great plan and his purposes for us. So that's the first asset he gives to us. The second thing that he gives to us is he gives us himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, our chief cornerstone. In Isaiah 28, the prophet Isaiah says, seeing this this foretelling of the Messiah to come, he says, you see, I lay in stone, as in, I, sorry, you see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. God has given us this cornerstone. Now, it takes a little bit of architecture to think through this. In the olden days, um, obviously the architecture of a building like this or your house is much different, but in the olden days, you had a cornerstone. And it was that stone that the whole building was built on. That stone set the trajectory of the building. And it was the most important stone. It was the chief cornerstone. And it would always sit in the corner of a building. And you can see it in older architectural structures. Jesus is this cornerstone for our life. He, this is the relationship that God has given us to know this foundational stone, to have relationship with him. It is the piece of the building so essential that you can't have a building without it. And you think about this, since it's the most crucial block, is Jesus Christ, the Lord, the most crucial relationship of your life? Is he your cornerstone? Think about this. If he is, you wouldn't make major decisions without him. You won't process your emotions without speaking to him. You won't view your life, your vocation, without a deep consideration of him and what he desires for you. You Think about it this way. If you're in high school, what college am I going to go to? Or what person will I date? Or someday maybe marry? Or what sport will I play? Your whole life, if he is not your cornerstone, then this is what happens. You will not feel a tie to God nor his people, because there will be something else shaping and forming you. you might, I might say it another way. If you are living without Jesus Christ as the foundation of your life, then this is how you'll be tempted to live. You'll ask these kinds of questions. My life is about what makes me happy, finding my passion or meaning or purpose, or where I can get the most money or the greatest degree of pleasure. And yet, here's this simple prayer. If you're sitting where you are, if you would just close your eyes and listen to me pray this for a second. So there's no distractions. Listen to this prayer. Lord Jesus, I am yours. Where do you want me to serve you best? And where do you want to shape me best? And to whom do you want to put in my life 
to do that best, even if it is not the place I would choose. Okay, you can open your eyes. See what I'm getting at, what Paul's saying to us. God has given us his word and the Lord Jesus to be our foundation as we become his church. So lastly, your future. Paul says in verse 22, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and in him, in Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, you are being built. It's a future perfect tense. It means it's always happening to you until the end of all time. You are being built together with one another to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And as Jesus becomes our cornerstone, he is the rejected one, the excluded one, but because Jesus has been rejected for us, how sweet it is that the very one who was rejected invites you and I to become a place and a house and a family where he dwells. You are being built together, not just individually, but a dwelling place. And as this construction happens on your life, you will have the surpassing power of God at work forming you and shaping you into this beautiful building where God dwells powerfully. C.S. Lewis tells a story about what the gospel does to our lives. And he says, it's almost like um, our life is a house and the gospel comes into our house. And what we think is that we need to remodel the kitchen. Like that's, you know, I got this little area of my life that I want to fix. Maybe it's my behavior or attitude or things I shouldn't be doing or, or practices I'm doing. So it's like my kitchen and I want to remodel my kitchen. And C.S. Lewis says, the gospel actually says, nope, it's not just your kitchen. It's the whole house. We're going to tear it all down and we're going to start again with a new foundation and that foundation being Jesus Christ. And you are being built as a holy temple to God where he will dwell with you powerfully through his spirit. This summer, I, I started saying this to Jesus. I am by nature a doer, not a beer. So I've really had to cultivate just time with God, time that I'm not trying to learn something or design something or study something. I'm just being in the presence of God. And so this summer, I started this practice. Every time I just get that alone time with God, I say a very simple prayer. It goes something like this. Jesus, I just want to be where you are. And honestly, I don't care where you are is, but I just want to be there with you. Psalm 84 says this, one day spent in your house, this beautiful place of worship beats or surpasses thousands spent on Greek island beaches. I'd rather scrub, scrub floors in the house of my God than be honored as a guest in the palace of sin. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to be a part of your church, whether we are on a screen or in person or in a parking lot six feet away. You are building in us a foundation, a sure foundation and a refuge that we will be your people and you will dwell with us. 
And we really do want to just be where you are because being with where you are is worth a thousand days in some other place that we think would be great. Thank you for speaking to us through the words of Paul and teaching us what it means to be the church, the citizens, the family, and the temple of God. And we ask you to bless us as this church, Church of the Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.